0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, can we just give the worship team a hand for leading us in worship today? I just want to thank uh, Brandon and Grace and their team for, uh, for doing that. And uh, um, Grace, well done on those songs. Um, that was perfect. And uh, honestly, the sermon's been preached already. So um, we could go home, um, but we're not going to because you guys drove a long way to be here. And so we want to be respectful of your time and give you something, right? But listen, that's, that's the point of today. Uh, It's the greatness of Jesus Christ, and that's where we're going to be today. And so uh, we're going to look at the ministry of John the Baptist um, to to make that point, because that was his point. Um, I want to go ahead and just say, uh, Pastor Brett is still gone. I think he's flying out. Tomorrow, I believe. Is that right, Corinne? He's blind, flying out tomorrow. He'll be back um, uh, early this week. And so we're excited about that. Zach's back and Seth as well. Uh, so it's good to see you guys back in the building. And uh, hopefully your time was meaningful. We look forward to hearing uh, um, your report on that sometime. Maybe next Sunday. You can take the whole Sunday to just give a nice big report about it. No? Okay. Not comfortable with that. So we'll hear about it, I'm sure. Um, But listen, uh, really glad uh, to join together uh, in the Word today in Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 7 and 8. But we're also going to be in John chapter 3 quite a bit today. And just to clarify, uh, the book of John, uh, the gospel of John, was not written by John the Baptist. And so I'm going to be going back and forth talking about John the Baptist and John, but I might forget to put the Baptist on the end of John's name. So just try to keep track of that. Um, But John the Baptist did not write the gospel of John. But um, listen, if you're here today, um, then you probably likely know the feeling uh, of what it feels like to be surpassed in something, right? Right? Uh, and if you don't know what that feels like, you've not lived long enough yet, or you truly are God's gift to humanity. Um, because everybody should know the feeling of being surpassed. Um, I remember when I was finally old enough, strong enough, big enough, fast enough to beat my dad at basketball. I loved it. He didn't love it so much. And so in that moment, uh, he decided to change his strategy. And so no longer was it his goal to win, his goal was just to make it hurt really bad as I won. Um, and so, yeah, in the, in the driveway on the gravel thing there, you know, it was not uncommon for some blood to be left on the ground. He wasn't abusive or anything, he was just competitive, right? Um, and and uh, it was fine for me. I enjoyed it. I loved learning through that way. Um, I'm learning this feeling of being surpassed now. The other night, we were playing Mario Party with my girls, and they're like 8 and 9. I'm not good at video games, but I'm an adult, so I can beat them pretty, pretty, pretty easily. Until my youngest daughter, who's 8, just like completely destroyed our entire family. Like, not even close. No bonus, no anything. If you don't know what Mario Party is, it's just a little video game that's built like a board game. And she destroyed us, and I had in my head the thought, like, my reign has ended. I'm no longer the king of Mario Party in my house. But listen, as the pride dust settles in these situations, I think parents in general love to see their kids excel, right? Um, I know my dad did for us when it came to sports and and faith and and everything. And uh, I do as well, even in pointless matters of video games. Um, But listen, in the sports world, in the corporate world, in the ministry world, even um, it's not always a thing where people love to see other people excel. In fact, people have been known to seriously lose their composure when their, their composure, when their pride is defaced by someone who is just flat out better than them at something. People can lose it; they have breakdowns. And last week we looked at the greatness of the ministry of John the Baptist, who is this herald who prepared the way for the Lord. And his whole entire ministry was built on this one thing, to be surpassed. Like his whole ministry, he knew from the start, was this is to pave the way for someone greater, stronger, more, more mighty, more worthy than you. He knew this. This was part of his ministry. This was always the nature of what he came to do. John the Baptist's followers, they began to follow Jesus. John's ministry began to fade away, but he wasn't threatened by it. He didn't lose his composure, and that's for a very important reason. Because before Jesus' earthly ministry even began, John was already living in complete deference to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. He had already concluded in his heart, Christ is the only one sufficient Nothing else is, including myself. He concluded it. And this is the same conclusion we must come to and the same humility and deference that we must arrive to as we live our lives in complete subjection and complete humility to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, make note, this is not a threat to your pride and your insecurities, It's a matter to be rejoiced over, and that's exactly what John the Baptist did. And so we're going to read about John's humility in comparison to the greatness of Jesus Christ today, and I want to invite Paul Acy up, who's one of our elders, who's going to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and if you could, would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Good morning. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, to this point, based on what we've talked about last week and this week, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, um, I hope we can understand now that his impact, the greatness of his impact, was because God was... Mightily great through him. His ministry was God's ministry for him, and he lived in faithfulness and obedience to what God called him to. And as we see in Mark chapter 7, or sorry, Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, what he proclaimed, the nature of his ministry was a proclamation of one who was more powerful, one who was more worthy, and one with a greater baptism. Everything about Jesus was better than what John had to offer because John was just John. He wasn't Jesus. He was just proclaiming Jesus, and he was pointing people to Jesus. And so what I love is John's grappling with and understanding and his posture as he understood his ministry in comparison to the greatness of Jesus Christ, this adult person who he really hasn't even come to like have a, a vibrant relationship with yet. Right? His whole life built up to this. And so I want to look at John's humility and and that relationship with the greatness of Jesus Christ today. And to do that, we're going to use Mark chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, to send us over to John chapter 3. Okay, so John chapter 3, uh, we have this interchange with John the Baptist and some of the disciples. And John the Baptist just says one-liner after one-liner of just solid, rich content. So that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. And in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, we see John's humility on display, and it's remarkable, okay? So here it goes, verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. And in our study in Mark, um, eventually we will get to the arrest and uh, uh, the the, the killing of John the Baptist. And so we'll read about that later, but we're not going to talk about it too much today. And then it says in verse 25, then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And so this is interesting, right? Because the stage is set, John and Jesus and their followers, they're all in the same vicinity, they're baptizing, and so questions start to arise because it was a common confusion that, that John the Baptist was more than what he said he ever was. People mistook him for the Messiah. And so questions started to arise about John's ministry, Jesus' ministry, and one particular question about purification practices is Jesus uh, had already up to this point done some miraculous things. And he's already kind of upset uh, kind of the, the law and the purification rites that people, people knew of. Um, this is probably likely a, a, you know, a reference back to something when, when Jesus um, turned water into wine, and there was an issue of purification even in that setting. Don't know for sure, but either way, the main point of this question is less about just wanting genuine knowledge and more about a competitive nature. There's a competitive nature between the two ministries, even though they're really a singular ministry, and we see this in what the disciples asked. And so in verse 26, this is what we see. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, teacher, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. It's like, John, teacher, you're losing your people. This other guy's stealing your followers. And Jesus responded, or John responded, sorry, John the Baptist responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So there's your first one-liner of the day: solid gold. And we've looked already in past, uh, last week and this week, how John the Baptist understood that his ministry was God's ministry. It was not his. It was something that God gave him, called him to, chose him for, to play the herald of the coming of the Christ. John understood everything that he had was from God. Verse 28 says this, John says this, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. And he goes on to Kind of say a parable of his own. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. And so this joy of mine is complete. And then verse 30 he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must increase. Now John the Baptist. Um, it's interesting. He kind of equates himself to the best man of the situation, right? The bride is God's people. The groom is Jesus, and then he calls himself kind of this this groom's friend, this best man. In their culture, uh, the groom, the best the best man of the groom, uh, had a kind of more responsibility, best man duties, but even more, right? And so much of what happens is under his under his gaze. And he says, "I just rejoice to know that the groom showed up. I'm just glad to know he's here." Right? That's the part he played. He's kind of the best man in the situation. I like thinking of it that way. Not threatened by it, right? Um, Not threatened by by Jesus' presence, but filled with gladness, filled with joy. I want to go ahead and just throw a quick aside here, if you don't mind. You know, no matter how humble someone might be, and there's a lot of humble people, no matter how many times John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah, and he said it over and over again. There's something about people that we still are so drawn to people who have the appearance, they have the influence. They could be as humble as all can get out. I mean, they could be the most humble servants of Christ, and yet people still have a tendency to worship them or view, view them too highly than they should, so much so that the very people that we view probably would be very annoyed <laughs> at how we do it, right? So usually when I make this point, to bring some clarity, I'll, I'll mention the, the case of uh, John Calvin. Anybody know who John Calvin was? Okay, John Calvin was a brilliant, brilliant person. And there's a lot of people today who still refer to themselves as Calvinists, right? Now, if you're a Calvinist, don't get mad at me, okay? I'm just using this as an example. Now, there's some Calvinists, certainly not you, but there's other Calvinists who would love for FBN to just be FBN Seminary, right? Lofty matters of predestination and and sovereignty of God. And they would love for this to just be an academic setting where we could just think about all of the lofty matters. But did you know that John Calvin didn't talk about the subject too often? It wasn't a focal point, a main focal point of his. And They would love for, for this place to be just a place of learning and learning and learning and learning. Do you know what John Calvin said about that, as brilliant as he was? He said this, and I love this quote. He says, When I preach, I regard neither doctors nor magistrates. I have all eyes on the servant maids and on the children. And if the learned men are not well-pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open. That's pretty good, isn't it? Similarly, John the Baptist. I don't think he would be a fan with people who, who follow him today. Calvinists, but there's other people who follow John the Baptist. Did you know that? There's actually a group of people. They're known as the Mandeans, and they hail out of the Middle East. Uh, but because of all of the conflicts in the Middle East, the Mandeans have been separated across the nations, and now they have high concentrations in Australia and Sweden and San Antonio, Texas, believe it or not. And these people believe that they are direct descendants of the followers of. John the Baptist, and they believe John the Baptist was the last and greatest of the prophets. And they baptize each other weekly. So if you're a Mandean, you might be baptized 3,000 times before you die, right? It's a very different approach. But again, they do what they do in honor of John's name, and yes, they've missed John's point. They've missed John's main point. Because he spent his entire life deferring people to a greater name. He spent his entire life deferring people to Jesus Christ. And he says so clearly when he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And other translations say, he must become greater and I must become less. Now I think that's probably one of the most remarkable statements of faith and humility in the scriptures. But I also think, I also think he teaches a world of truth in that small phrase because our humility must begin in the order he describes. He becomes greater, and as a result, we become less. He becomes greater, and so then we become less. If the dominant factor of our faith is completely consumed with the latter matters of us skip his greatness and just get back to the hard work about my faith the things i need the things i want all of the stuff i need to pursue him if the focus is still me then even if it's active faith it's still prideful faith and it's self-absorbed if you skip the greatness of christ and just jump to me 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 what i need what i need what i want to do what i want to do my ministry my ministry then it's still a prideful ministry even if it's active to put it in simpler terms, if your pursuit of Jesus is always dominated by fixing your wrongs and rarely considers with depth what he's done miraculously right, then you've missed the point. Your pursuit is still self-absorbed, and this is pride. Selwyn Hughes is a wonderful Welsh minister who said it this way, ask any Christian bookshop manager, what are the best-selling books? Not those that unfold for us the nature of God. But those that direct us towards such things as how to get a better self-image, how to manage money, how to find inner healing, how to get more excitement out of life, and so on. Not that these subjects are unimportant, but they're explored in a self-absorbed way that gives the idea that the most important thing in life is knowing ourselves better. It isn't. It isn't. The most important thing in life is knowing God better. And in today's church, we are too man-centered and not God-centered. And if God is not our primary focus, then everything else will soon get out of focus. Amen? True humility only happens in constant focus of the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. And that's where John goes. We saw his humble nature, but then he follows in John chapter 3 with just this speech about the greatness of Jesus. Look at John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. He goes on to say, The one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God is on him. Now, this is remarkable, and I know we read that quickly, but if you didn't notice, there are probably seven and maybe even more attributes that John the Baptist points out about Jesus Christ. First is this in verse 31. He's not from here. His residence is somewhere else. His origin, though he has no origin, he's from heaven, right? Not only that, his testimony, right? We imagine what he talks about with the kingdom of God. This is not something that he hasn't experienced. When when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's already been in it. He's the king, and he comes from it. He is it, right? And so he speaks with experience about what that is. He speaks with God's own words. He's filled with the full measure of God's own spirit, He has the complete measure of God's own love. He has the authority given to him by God over all things. And not only that, he has the name given to him by God through which God dispenses life upon the name of Jesus Christ. Apart from the name of Christ, there is no life. And you're still stuck in the wrath that you came into this world with. In the name of Jesus Christ, you have life. Because God gives life to those who have the name of Jesus Christ. What's the common denominator? the common name it's clear hopefully that jesus is in perfect unity and harmony with god because jesus is divine in his nature as he is man jesus is god jesus is god colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 17 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. That is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus Christ. He is God. Allah is not God. It's not the same higher thing with a bunch of different names. That's not it. Buddha is not God. No other God. The president is not God. Your political party is not God. Nothing that people worship is God except for God who is Jesus Christ. Nothing else. It is exclusive. He is the only one, and he's the only one who's deserved it, and he's the only one who can save you through that. It is only his name through which life is dispensed through and from God. He is God. Is that clear? Man, I read, a, I read a survey recently that said that even in evangelical churches, the understanding that Jesus is God and only Jesus is God alone is, is dwindling. What, that, what I mean by that is higher and higher numbers of evangelical Christians are getting lost in this Gnostic understanding that, yeah, lots of same names for the same God, right? It's Oprah theology is what we call it. It's not it. Jesus is God. Do not be confused. He is the only one. And as John the Baptist said, your entire life hinges on whether or not you accept and believe that truth. Everything about you. Your entire worth in this life and your entire eternity hinges upon what you think Jesus is. Who you think he is. He is God. And apart from Jesus' greatness as God, our belief is nothing. Our humility is nothing. And our Empty life, in our earthly life, it ends in opposition to God, marked by wrath. But those who accept and believe in Jesus in humility will have eternal life. So how do we accept and believe in Jesus for eternal life? Well, we do what John the Baptist preached and taught. We confess our sins and we repent and turn our heads and hearts to Christ as our only hope, both of which signs of surrender, Of the heart and life to King Jesus. Andrew Murray was a wonderful pastor who said it uh, in his classic work titled Humility, which is fitting. He said, Our one abiding position before God must be that of those whose highest joy it is to confess they are sinners saved by grace. It's interesting that if it's one of our highest joys, I'm surprised not more Christians do it. Very easy for people to just confess sin and just, you know, kind of get Christ and, like, get saved and do that whole thing and go through that high or whatever. And then this repeated part of confession, confessing their sins before the Lord, repenting and turning, and that's not a habit. That's not a a part of their spiritual formation. That's not a part of their life. And if it's not, then we might be very well missing out on one of the highest joys of our faith. is confessing our sin to someone who we already know has said yes to forgive. Right? He's not a heavy-handed dad who's just looking for ways to just cream you. He's not. He's already given you the yes. And he's already said, if you respond to me in humility, then it's a yes. You got it. You don't need to be afraid of what his response is going to be. The crazy thing is this. There's so many Christians who are still living without this joyful confession. And I think without the joyful confession, we become way more prone to matters of just Becoming guilt-ridden even as believers. Feeling distant from God even as believers. How does this stuff happen unless our faith has just clearly become more about us than Him? But through confession, we just constantly come back to this place of humility where we we remember. It's just, it's really all about Him. And we align ourselves with that. And in there, there's joy. There's peace. There's grace. So if you're here, listen, if you never... receive God's forgiveness for your sins, you need to know that if you call to him in faith, then the answer is yes. He's gonna give you a yes if you call to him in faith and humility of your heart. Romans 10 verses nine through thirteen, nine and thirteen says this if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe he is completely sufficient to restore you? Do you believe he is completely sufficient enough to confess? Uh, 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 do you believe it enough to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you think that's enough for you to do, to live for him humbly and wholeheartedly? Maybe as you ask these questions to yourself, you feel something stirring in you, even now saying yes, like he's inside saying yes for you, then I want you to know that today is your day to say yes to him, to call upon his name in faith, and to receive his forgiveness of your sins, and for the saving of your soul, to accept and believe in Jesus, and you will have the fullness of life now and forever by the greatest name of all, which is Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you're here and you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, but your faith is just its hit this wall, and I know this wall well, okay? So it's this wall that becomes joyless. Your faith kind of becomes routine more than wholehearted, right? Guilt just kind of wraps you up, puts you in this pit, and it just feels hard to climb out. Complacent, distracted, empty, powerless. If this describes your faith today, then the likelihood that your faith has become more about you than him is pretty strong. Regardless of what you're doing, if the likelihood that your faith has become more about you than him is pretty strong. And my heart today is that we would be reminded of the greatness of Christ simply to remember that you've already been healed of whatever the distance is that you're feeling. You've actually already been forgiven of whatever the sin guilt is that you're carrying. You've already been restored uh, from whatever this broken part of your faith is that you're facing right now. You've already already got it in the Holy Spirit and by his gospel. You've already got it in you. You don't need another self-help book or motivational experience. You just need to believe in what he's already done. You've just got to believe in what he's already done. Now, a lot of times if I have just kind of like a, um, a high mental day here at the office, and in one case I was just, I had this message on my mind, and so one of the things I like to do is I'll go out to the golf course and I'll just roll a few putts to decompress. And so I had this message kind of rolling around in my head as I was rolling a few putts and I had some worship music going on, and the song came into my earbuds. And it was just, it was a God moment, you know what I mean? Sometimes they just send you that exact thing that you need, and I was having a hard time articulating what I was sensing that I wanted to communicate and then the song came on called Resurrender. I was like, well, that's a good start. And the lyrics go like this. Mark your people with your presence. Make us a place where you delight to dwell. May we heed your hand's correction, O Lord, our shepherd. You do all things well. Your love, as firm as it is tender, your law is perfect and your judgment's true. As we run to resurrender, you will restore what returned to you. You are restoring as we yield anew. And I just thought, if there's anything that our self-absorbed Christian American way of faith and church needs, it is yield anew. It is complete and total re-surrender. Because so many people are so debilitated by their own sin, so infatuated with their own ministry. So impressed by their own ability, so distracted by their own passions, so hurt by their own history, so burdened by their own schedule, so manipulated by their own definitions of truth, so apathetic by their own pride, so enslaved by their own insecurity, and so ungrateful by their own blindness, so stunted in their own immaturity, and so discontent in their love for comfy faith, and so consumed by their own ministry activity, and so on and so forth, and it's just all self-absorption. It's just all pride. All of it. It's completely prideful. Even if it looks good and faithful, we're missing the main point, and we need resurrender. It's just become about us, and it's not about us. The whole way, it's just become about us, and it's not about us. Everything we do is just, to meet people at the lowest place, to make things as easy and as comfortable and as possible for every single person. It's just not about us. And this is the thing that the church often preaches, even by accident, that it's all about you, actually. It's not. It's just not. It's all about him. It's all 100% completely about him. And the bigger he becomes in our hearts, the less we become naturally. And that's my hope for us today is that regardless of what's going on what you're feeling all I don't have a nice big response time for you with targeted things I know we normally do that and that's a good thing but today it's not about that at all it's not about you it's about him and so what we're going to do is what we've already done today is we're going to sing again of his greatness. And that's our response. But I do hope that as you sing about his greatness, that surrender and resurrender would be rolling in your mind. Because if you're like me, there's no way you just listened to most of this and didn't think, yeah, there's parts of my faith. There's parts of me that are just broken. They feel unhealed. They feel distant. And, and, and I need resurrender. And you probably knew that's exactly what you needed before you walked in today. I would guess if you know the Lord, he's already convicted you in this way somehow. You didn't need me to tell you, but maybe you just needed a moment to actually do it. And so I pray today is that moment to resurrender, to submit those things to the Lord, all of the things that you've just been thinking, it's just about me. It's not, understand that, give that to him. And if you're here, And you've never surrendered at all. I pray that today would be your first time to say yes to the Lord, to surrender uh, to him, to believe in him, to accept him. And so as this song plays, would you receive Christ, confess your sins, repent, and you can sing with your words and declare your new faith in Christ as God of all creation and the savior of your soul and the reigning king over your life. Jesus is God. There is no other way. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would draw us now into the place of surrender and resurrender. Father, as we sing of your greatness and of your might, as we sing of the, uh, the wonder of your son, God, I pray that you would just let this time draw us to humility above all. And as we avoid putting specific responses on this, I pray that you would be very specific with how, uh, exactly how you want to be in each of our hearts. Whatever those very specific things are that we have just been resisting, re-surrender. God, I pray that you would just break us down. Help us understand it is not about us. It is all about you. And the less we get, the better it is. And in fact, despite what the, Lord, uh, what, what, what the world tells us, the less we get, it is more peaceful. It is more joyous, less pressurized. God, I pray that you would convince us of this today by the power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And in his awesome name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.